Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB TV's Lawmakers and the new show, Lawmakers Beyond the Dome, and I'm filling in for Bill Nygut. So welcome also to the last live show of Political Rewind for 2022 as we cover the January 6th committee investigating the deadly January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol that has referred former President Donald Trump for four criminal charges related to the insurrection. And the committee's long-awaited report was scheduled to come out yesterday, but was pushed back in part due to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's surprise visit to Washington. So lots to discuss that and more. It's cold outside. Luckily, I have a stellar panel here to break down what to expect from the release of the report and more. And starting with my colleague at GPB, but the politics reporter, Stephen Fowler. And Stephen, you are not you're already settled in for the holiday because you're in Ohio, right? I am, and I'm trying not to be as negative as the temperature is about to be. <laughs> it's going to get down to negative four where I am in the next 24 hours, and I am not looking forward to it. Oh, boy. Well, you stay warm up there, and we're 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 not we're not doing a whole lot better down here in Georgia in terms of the weather. Also joining me is longtime panelist and Emory professor Andra Gillespie. Andra, uh, things have calmed down for the semester. You must be, you know, kind of in, you know, a quieter mode right now, huh? Not exactly. I turned my grades in, but now it's all the other stuff that I owe people before the holiday. And then there's the mad rush to, like, get my Christmas cards out today. And my family knows they get them late. Like, they expect this from me, but... I got to get that done today, too. <laughs> I'll admit I finished mine last night, late last night. So, yeah, I figure if before a New Year's or maybe even after, if they get them, that's good. So, it was the year. I got them, I got them out in February, so I'm not that bad anymore. <laughs> but. Oh, well, that's good to know. In terms, I feel better now. Now, thank you. Thank you for helping me feel better. Thanks for being here. Oh, and then I am excited that the dean of politics, Charles Bullock, Chuck Bullock, is joining us. And I guess it's about the same. Same for you. Are you done grading papers and everything? Oh, yeah. We had to have our grades in on Monday. So, yeah, I, I, I threw ahead of the curve this time. So that won't happen again. Oh. Yeah, glad okay. done okay. Well, thanks so much for being here. And finally, I'm really thrilled that Representative Terry Anulowitz is here from the Georgia Assembly. I know from the House. She's done a lot of work under the Gold Dome, and the legislative session starts in a few short weeks. Yes, I am. I am here in Smyrna in the middle of HD 42, and I am elbow deep in the magic of Christmas at my house. Oh, the magic of Christmas. Yes, I, I'm glad. We'll... The magic of Christmas. Let's be <laughs> <No>. clear. <laughs> well, thank you all for being here. Let's dive right into it right now, dealing with uh, Zelensky's trip, which was the first trip he's made outside of the Russia-Ukraine border since February. So it was a big deal. Uh, they got him in safely. He was able to leave safely. And so let's listen to his address to Congress last night, a little piece of it about the ongoing war in his country. Against, against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. Thank you. Yeah, this was a big deal for him to do that. I remember that uh, last night it was on some of the stations, and it looked like it might go for a long time. But he's he's uh, he it was it was a short speech in the end. Uh, Stephen, he was just hours after landing in Washington. He received a one point eight billion dollar aid package for uh, Ukraine. It includes weapons and other other things. Um, so talk a little bit about what all of this uh, this means for our, our country and um, Ukraine. Well, you could really view it as a couple of different uh, 
points that he wanted to get across here. There were a lot of parallels that he invoked to uh, prior global conflicts and prior moments where, you know, America was involved with the fate of another country. And it was really, I think a lot of people took away from this, that uh, his speech was meant to kind of assuage or really target Republicans who want to cut aid to Ukraine because they're more focused on domestic issues. They want to talk about America's border before they want to talk about other nations' borders. And really by giving a speech that he did was really underscoring that America's role in global affairs is not one that can be shied away from and really illustrated that um, the money that's been given so far, the weapons that have been given, the training and everything so far, is more than just dollars and cents when it comes to the uh, survival of a country. And so I think it really undercut a lot of potential criticism that people might have abstractly about money and weapons going to Ukraine. Yeah, and I think it was important to that he do it before uh, 2022 ends and things change in Washington. So I, I think there was a, a lot of that there. But but I want to switch, though, and get a little bit into the other big thing in Washington, the, the back to the January 6th committee. And they held their final hearing, of course, on Monday. Um, they were convinced that there was enough evidence to charge um, former President Donald Trump with four things, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to make a false statement, and conspiracy to defraud the U.S. by assisting, aiding, or comforting those involved in an insurrection. So there's, there's a, a, you know, we were expecting the report today, but there uh, were delays yesterday. We were respecting the report yesterday. It will come out today. Uh, the, apparently there were some de- delays in it. Culmination of a year and a half of work, like 18 months of work, interviews a 1,000 people. Um, the committee has... Um, Getting is wrapping it all up. Um, we have a new Congress as uh, Republicans take control of the House. Uh, Professor Bullock, other than forwarding the findings to the DOG, uh, the committee can't do anything more. It has no legal weight. So would you still consider the work by the committee worth it? Was it was it valuable? Yeah, it certainly was because this creates a historical record uh, while people are still alive and remember exactly what happened. So rather than trying to recreate it years down the road, here we have this almost live presentation of here is what exactly took place. And, you know, Congress has done what it can. The Justice Department may or may not pursue some of this, but the historical record is there and it'll be awfully difficult going forward for people to say, now that didn't amount to much because we have the, the testimony of those who are very close to the scene saying, Here's what I saw. Here's what happened immediately around me. So it was important to have you know, see, made this record and, and have it in place. Yeah. Andre, weigh in on this. What, what occurs to me in terms of what the public might see out of this is uh, more of an interest in the transcripts and what people had to say, the witnesses. Well, I don't think people are going to pour through it, even though I think as a, an archive of record, right, this is a fantastic oral history project. Like the first thing I thought of as a professor was, hmm, how can I get my students to actually like leverage this to learn how to actually like go through qualitative data? Um, and, you know, in order to uh, be able to make sense and meaning and be able to sort the things that come out of it. The record is there for anybody who wants to look through those transcripts of, that, of the thousand interviews. Um, and what we've seen so far in terms of the executive summary is certainly a distillation of familiar uh, faces and voices who are making comments, talking about what they were thinking, doing and saying in real time. And I think that that's actually very, very valuable for us to uh, to consider. And then even though the January 6th committee um, can't do anything beyond what they have already done, and this is certainly going to be dissolved once Republicans take over the House of Representatives, there is a possibility that the Democratic-controlled Senate um, with its uh, subpoena power that it will now have as a result of having a clear majority, um, will actually be able to pursue some things further if they want to. And then we know that Jack Smith, uh, the special counsel that has has been retained in order to look into um, this investigation, has asked for the records of the January 6th committee. So this is going to have a second life in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And in addition, you know, we don't know what's going to come out of the Fulton County um, grand jury report, but like, you know, there's a lot of overlap here. So this isn't done by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, we just have to wait to see whether or not 
uh, the top players that are involved, uh, the ones who have not been the most cooperative, including former President Trump, are actually going to end up getting indicted by somebody. Yeah. I mean, Terry, we know that the Republicans have been downplaying this a whole lot, but uh, let's talk about the public interest some more. Do you think that the public has a lot of interest at this point? I mean, you know, it's, it is coming or, you know, out around the holidays and it is the end of the year and we do have a new Congress coming in. Now, traditionally, the end of December is probably the worst time that you want to have information or any kind of a news story come out. It is it is not a t- people are you know, they are they are very wrapped up in celebrating the holidays. They're wrapped up in, in finishing their years at work. But I do think that just like Ezra Bullock and Dr. Gillespie said, I think this is going to be a bit of a historical slow burn. I think having the information there, I think that there are, of course, many, many, many members of the of, of the United States population who are very interested in this and who are going to read the executive summary. There are even more, you know, even those who are going to read the entire report. But no, I think that whether or not there is a a fervent interest in understanding the report this time of year, I think what it, what is going to matter the most is what comes next, especially for the people who are implicated in this report. You know, they are what happens when they do decide to run for office in the future. What happens when they're trying to get a job in an, in, in in a you know perhaps a congressional staff office or in an administration or in an agency in the future? I think there are going to be. Uh, I think there are going to be implications and really consequences for those folks. And I think in terms of the public perception, again, describing it as an oral history is really the perfect thing. And oftentimes when you have these these oral history, you know, I think about in firsthand oral histories from slave narratives is what I think of as someone who, who studied that aspect of history. But you have these narratives and they're, and they're going to it, – it's, it's going to make its way into the public consciousness. And I think whether or not it is a slow burn or it is a flash, I think that there, is, there are going to be, there's going to be meaning for what's in this report. It's going to resonate, even if, you know, not, it's not what everyone's reading right now. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about it, Stephen, Georgia, in all of this, because the final report focused a lot on Georgia. Uh, Georgia was mentioned 60 times in just the 154-page executive summary. The committee repeatedly cited then-President Trump's phone call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, uh, asking him to find votes. It also brought up the false voting fraud allegations against the two Fulton County election workers and other actions in Georgia. So how meaningful was all of that? Well, Donna, I mean, the the road to understanding January 6th and what happened certainly has one of its starting destinations in Georgia. Georgia was one of several swing states where a lot of the attempts to overturn the election took place. It was one of the more prominent ones because it's one that we've heard contemporaneous reporting that President Trump was uh, the most upset about losing and most in disbelief that he actually lost. It's one where you have like you mentioned, the call between Trump and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger that was made public where people could hear firsthand Trump trying to strong arm an elected official into overturning the election results. And you had elected officials, you know, up and down the ballot from the local level all the way up to, you know, people that are were at the time, you know, U.S. senators and U.S. House representatives try to manipulate the election results. So I think when this report comes out, and even just the executive summary that came out, just shows how central Georgia is and Republicans in Georgia were and elections officials in Georgia were to this effort that the committee is arguing was an intentional attempt that resulted in several laws being broken. So I think, you know, we'll see when the full report comes out how all of that plays into it. But certainly, as we also, Donna, have this Fulton County special grand jury here in Georgia looking at things. I mean, Georgia is one of the starring players in understanding at the time what happened, but also retrospectively looking at all the pieces and how they came together. Yeah. Professor Bullock, I, I want to ask you about that. What do you think that this uh, committee, the committee's investigation has will have any impact or what, what does it do when it comes to the Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's investigation? Anything? Well, they should, I think, dovetail and that they're both focusing heavily upon what took place in that phone call between Brad Raffensperger and the president. 
So, yeah, to build on what Stephen was saying, I think there was more disbelief perhaps in the White House about Georgia not coming through than the loss of Nevada, Arizona, some of the other states. Because what I've been told is that while Republican leaders in Georgia were trying to get the word to the White House back in 2020, 2020 that Georgia was not the same as it had been in 2016, that their messages weren't getting through, that people they were talking to simply did not believe it. Thus, yeah, much greater disbelief on the part of the president when he didn't carry Georgia. And then the other element is that his phone call to Brad Raffensperger, that made kind of make sense from the White House perspective, and that here he was calling a Republican Secretary of State, where if he called out the Arizona, he'd be talking to a Democratic Secretary of State. So he thought the president thought he could leverage his position and maybe get a response. That's why he concentrated more on Georgia than on these other states, which he also, he and his supporters claimed that they actually won. Because if, if you couldn't convince a Republican to help you in this, this conspiracy, you certainly were not going to have success in Wisconsin or, or some of the other states, which were thought or claimed by the president to be you know, his in his column rather than the Democratic column. So that, that's why Georgia has taken on such significance, these two elements. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, I'm sure he didn't expect the pushback that he got, not only from the Secretary of State's office, but from the governor. But let's talk about, the, Andra, the, the damage. Is there damage, if any, to um, the former president in this report or with this new Congress coming in? Uh, will it not make a difference? So, you know, I think that in, in some ways this actually even extends beyond uh, Congress. So, you know, I don't expect the, the House of Representatives in particular to carry this further. They've stated their intentions very clearly. Um, and, 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 and Kevin McCarthy is dealing with a fractious uh, Republican caucus as it is. So even if he wanted to try to do something, he's, you know, if he gets speaker, he's going to get it by the skin of his teeth. And so he's going to have to make a lot of concessions uh, to people, including people who are still very firm election deniers. Um, I think in some instances, a lot of the damage may actually be unfolding and it may be beyond people's control. The things that I've seen in the uh, executive summary of the report, and, you know, I, I haven't read through the whole thing, but from the, the parts that I've looked through, is them setting up a case of, of not just sort of honing in on states like Georgia, which they had a hard time accepting that they weren't going to believe, but that, that there was a lot of planning and intentionality um, ahead of time about, look, if we lose, this is how we're going to say that we won. And so it's this idea that there was planning um, and that, uh, you know, this had been executed even before the election results uh, were, you know, counted because we were still kind of in an active early voting phase. Election day itself hadn't happened yet. I think it's something that is uh, telling. It's not surprising. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people who maybe may not be in a position to want to accept it now. But now that it's in the, the record and it's very methodically laid out. There will come a point, I think, where people will look at back at this one day and they will kind of be able to kind of look and see what happened and maybe accept results that are a little bit uh, too uncomfortable uh, to accept right now. So, you know, it's, it's not just, you know, that this happened. We all saw what happened, but that, that was also a lot of planning and coordination. And the idea that President Trump was saying, like, days before the election, I'm just basically going to say that I won this and take it away. And so there is this this very authoritarian sort of framing of these comments based on the testimony of his aides that I think we should all take pause at um, and say that this shouldn't be taking place in a democracy. Yeah. Stephen, what does this do to Trump 2024 presidential bid? Well, it's not necessarily clear what it'll do, because so far, Trump 2024, uh, he we have to remember that he actually did declare who's running for office for a third time, even though he hasn't really done much with it. He spent more time selling uh, NFTs and digital trading cards, raising millions of dollars off of that than doing actual campaign things, let alone campaign things of somebody who used to actually be president. So it certainly doesn't help his case because the people that uh, would be in disbelief about this report and already think it's a scam and a witch hunt are probably people that would vote for him anyway. So this report coming out um, isn't necessarily going to further increase their support for him. But what it has done is it's shown other Republicans that there are potentially multiple lanes to challenging Trump. You have obviously Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' name being bandied about as somebody who could be Trump without the baggage. But you also have more moderate Republicans uh, like uh, Chris Sununu and others 
that are saying, hmm, maybe people are tired of Trumpism and Trump, and maybe Republicans should nominate somebody else to run in 2024. But, I mean, it, at this point, there, even though there's constant new information that comes out in this, new details, like uh, alleged witness tampering with people testifying to the January 6th committee hearing, I think a lot of people at this point have their opinions about Donald Trump and if he should be president. It's just a matter of uh, what they do and what sort of alternatives show up. Yeah. Well, the January 6th uh, complete report, we're still expecting it later on today, but we're going to put a pin on, in it right now in terms of our discussion. And we're going to go to a break and then come back. And when we come back, we're going to look at what's ahead in the Georgia legislative session with Representative Terry Anulowitz and the rest of the panel. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry filling in for Bill Nygut. A few quick programming notes. This is the Political Rewind's team's last live episode of 2022. So tomorrow we will air on our holiday traditions a reading of Truman Capote's A Christmas Memory. You'll want to tune in for that. And the Rewind team will be back with live programming on January 3rd. So lots of things to listen to next week. But let's get back to our panel, GPB's Stephen Fowler, Professors Andra Gillespie and Chuck Bullock, and Representative Terry Anulowitz. So so we uh, January 9th, we begin the new Georgia General Assembly, completely new, um, with... Um, it's going to be different uh, in so many ways, and but let's let's start with one of the things. There are there were two vacancies in your chamber in the Georgia House, and one was filled um, on Tuesday. Carlton Howard was the the one who was <clears throat> excuse me. Carlton Howard is the brother of longtime state representative Wayne Howard. And he handily won his brother's state house seat this past Tuesday for the Augusta area with about 68 percent of the vote. And so, Terry, talk a little bit about your late colleague, Representative Wayne Howard. Let's start with that. Oh, Representative Howard is going to be so deeply missed. His, he is one of those members who was so well respected when he, when he went to the well to speak on an issue it was one of those moments when everyone in the House was going to be respectful and quiet. And if, if you've ever watched the House proceedings, you know that oftentimes when someone is speaking from the well, not unlike Congress, there's a lot of other activity happening in the background off camera. But when, when Representative Howard would speak, everyone would listen because he did not speak often and he did not speak lightly, by which I mean if he was going to speak to an issue in the well, it is because it is something that he cared deeply about and had a great depth of knowledge about the topic. And so his, he will be missed. We have lost, you know, we, we, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this in, up in the coming minutes, just so much institutional knowledge in the House. You know, we have a, a massive incoming freshman class coming into the House and into the Senate, but we have, we're going to have 43 new members in the House, which is going to, I think, transform the tone and tenor of the House in ways that we won't really understand until we're there. But but Representative Howard is going to be missed. And I also want to make a note, his, he had um, some health issues the last few years, and his wife, Cassandra Howard, accompanied him in the House every day. And every day, she was sitting in a chair right behind his desk in the House, and she was a charming, graceful, wonderful presence. And, and I, I know that you know, she will be, be cheering us on from home, but, but I'm going to miss seeing her every day also. 
Yeah. You know what? You mentioned the issues he cared about, and a lot of them dealt, dealt with the disabled, and he'd yeah. come on Political Rewind and talk about some of the things, uh, everything from handicap parking to to other issues that he saw from his perspective that others didn't see, and he helped us understand that. I'm glad you brought up the fact that his wife came in, because a, a lot of this is around, you know, his brother taking over now. Mm-hmm. And then we know also, so Andra, you know, Cherie Ralston is looking to fill the District 7 seat in in Blue Ridge, held by her late husband, uh, David Ralston, who was House Speaker. A representative, John uh, Burns, will take over as House Speaker in the new year. And um, Cherie is endorsed by Governor Kemp, by the the Georgia Chamber. And um, so here's another example of a family member, you know, so tied to the, the lawmakers who we see all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not surprising um, to see relatives take over uh, for, uh, for their loved ones when they either step down or when they die in office and replace them. In fact, this actually used to be the common way that women actually got into elected positions was that you succeeded your husband, uh, you know, uh, once he passed away. So it's, it's not terribly surprising. It's also not surprising that Mrs. Ralston is getting uh, the support that she's getting from the Republican establishment. You know, uh, when Speaker Ralston died, you know, there was some jockeying in terms of, you know, who was going to take his seat. And, you know, her, her leading opponent has his own issues with respect to voter fraud. So, uh, you know, I think it became very clear that there was going to be some type of coalescence um, around uh, the widow of the late Speaker. So, uh, you know, we have to wait to see what the, you know, eventual results um, are. But, uh, you know, this looks like, you know, she is going to follow in that tradition of succeeding her husband and carrying on his legislative agenda, particularly with respect to mental health, which is what I expect that she'll do. Yeah. And and I wonder, Chuck Bullock, what exactly her chances are. And, And can you give some more on the historical perspective regarding spouses or other family members running for seats of their deceased loved ones? Right. Well, for about the first uh, quarter century after the first woman went to Congress, as, as Andre suggested, yeah, almost all the women who got there got there by kind of succeeding their husband's beer, uh, burial beer. Um, one of the interesting things about that was an awful lot of those women who went would simply serve out the rest of their husband's term and then not run for successive terms. So it'll be really interesting to see, you know, does Sherry Walson really going to make a career of this and uh, continue to seek the office, or is she more of a placeholder? Uh, and in the past, again, just talking about Congress, I think the men would kind of draw back because it's a, it's a special election. You don't have time to get your ducks in a row. And so the woman would fill out the term, the widow would, and then the men would fight for who was going to you know, have potentially a career there. So that's kind of what the historical record of it is. Uh, in terms of kind of a legacy and having someone who is likely to fulfill the goals of the deceased, there's probably no one better than a family member who would be well-informed exactly in terms of what that deceased member was hoping to do and could also then draw upon the support given for a recently deceased and honored member of the legislature in terms of you know, drawing upon this and saying, here's, you know, let's do this as a legacy for my uh, deceased brother or husband or whatever. Yeah, we'll see how she does. Does the uh, the election is the the January third? Of course, it could go to a runoff, but we'll see. We'll, we'll certainly know um, before we start out the legislative session. Uh, Stephen, let's talk a little bit about. You know, I mentioned the leadership changes a little bit, but big leadership changes in both chambers. Right. So you know. House Speaker David Ralston, uh, longtime leader of the chamber, one of the most respected and, frankly, the most powerful politicians in Georgia. With his passing, we have a new speaker, John Burns, who is uh, more in the same vein of House Speaker Ralston. Um, he's not going to rule with an iron fist. He's, by all accounts, he's not a, he's not a very antagonistic person. Um, he's not going to upset the apple cart. And the House is generally known, even though there are more people and more personalities, as the more uh, calmer, more of the people chamber than the state Senate, which also has new leadership. The Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan not running for re-election, Burt Jones, who's a state senator, now ascending to that role. And there's a lot of new leadership jockeying that is going to take place these first couple months of the new session as people feel out what is it going to be like with 
Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and how, or Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones and how he's going to run things and how his deputies are going to do things and in the House, what is Speaker Burns going to be like and how is it going to affect committees and the flow of things and new personalities. And the one constant will be Governor Brian Kemp. He's going into his second term. He doesn't have to stand for re-election as governor. Um, he's got a lot more power. He won with a wide mandate in November. And so the people that he selects to be his floor leaders in both chambers to help move along legislation that he would like to see done are going to be very, very powerful people. And Georgia being such the battleground it's been the last couple of years with all these tight elections and people constantly running again, it's going to be a whole lot different vibe because, you know, Brian Kemp can do what he wants to do. He can push what he wants to do. He has new leaders to work with. And the next major election in Georgia is for president. And whoever runs for president doesn't control what happens under the gold dome. So I think we're going to see a lot different tenor legislatively in this first session of the new General Assembly because it can be focused a little bit more on what Georgia actually needs and wants and what lawmakers want to do as opposed to jockeying for higher office or trying to win a primary or things that might be a little more uh, spicy, so to speak. Yeah. Terry, let's talk about the other thing that'll be real different. So we talk about leadership. Let's talk about the uh, just the diversity that uh, is expected uh, that we will we will see uh, the most diverse um, general assembly we've had. New Hispanic caucus, AAPI caucus. I mean these these this is this is new to Georgia, and you know while they're not in leadership positions, it certainly does change things down there. Yes, and this. The there are a you know I was, I was looking at some stats that the AJC ran the other day and between 2012 and 2022 we have gone from, you know we've doubled the number of Hispanic members of the House going, you know gone from two to four but still that is a doubling uh, we've gone from one AAPI member to eight which so it I think it makes sense and is is wonderful that there's going to be a caucus now. Uh, we went from zero Afro-Latino members to two, zero to one Arab members. We have, so you know, we've gone overall from 65 to 83 members of color in the General Assembly. We've also gone from 55 to 81 women in the General Assembly. And so I think that as the makeup of the General Assembly more closely mirrors that of the makeup of Georgia, which we know is an extraordinarily vibrant and diverse state, even though so many of these folks are new, they're not going to be in leadership positions. Having these voices in the committee process, having these voices bringing different perspectives to the appropriations, you know, the budgeting process, bringing these perspectives to our, you know, the floor discussions that happen prior to votes. I think that it is really going to serve every person in Georgia very, very positively. I mean, you know, the more representative our democracy is, the better it is. The more perspectives you have, the more thorough your policies can be. I think the more, uh, hopefully we'll have fewer unintended consequences. Uh, oftentimes, you know, when we pass a large body of legislation, if impacted, if an impacted population isn't part of that conversation, then things can be left out. You know, I, I think about how uh, menstrual products like tampons, pads, things that are considered medical devices by the FDA are not exempt from sales tax the way other medical devices are in Georgia. And, in the, it's, and that is, I think, solely because when that list of exempt products was being compiled, only men were making those decisions. So again, having more women, having more ethnic diversity, having more cultural diversity, religious diversity, it is only going to help Georgia. Yeah, I, we do have, we'll have the diversity. I think there's a tendency to people to think that because it's diverse, it's going to um, be more democratic, but there are Republicans who are coming in within this diversity, Andra, right? There are Republicans who are going to, um, the Republicans have reached out to the to the various communities and it, they've succeeded in bringing in some people of color. Well, I mean, so, you know, and, and this isn't the first time that this has happened. I mean, there have been Republicans of color who have been in the chamber um, and to the extent that they want to caucus with uh, their uh, co-ethnic colleagues there uh, will be able to bring a voice uh, to these discussions. I think that it shows the diversity of the state and it allows us to see heterogeneity even within communities. 
I mean, it helps us to understand that descriptive representation or descriptive diversity is but one dimension on which we can talk about representativeness. Um, so it's important for people to be in the room because when they're not in the room, there are consequences for that. It actually ends up um, deadening our discussion. It doesn't enliven it. It doesn't create the types of synergies that we need to be able to address problems that can very easily be fixed, like the ones uh, that, that Terry just mentioned with respect to menstrual products. Um, but what it does do is, is, is also show that not all people of color think the same way. And I think that that's also a really important thing for people to be able to see. There are these kind of misconceptions, especially when you see people voting, uh, you know, overwhelmingly one way that everybody is sort of, you know, getting their orders from some civil rights leader in their community. That's not what's going on. And I think that you can be able to see that and have that wide range of discussion. And then there's still the larger discussion of what these descriptively representative uh, legislators do once they're in office, because if they're just there to kind of like seat um, and vote the way their party leadership tells them to, um, that's not necessarily effective representation, but we wanna see them being active. And so one of the ways that you can kind of help promote that uh, is to create sort of these critical masses of people who can sit and talk with each other and hold each other accountable. Um, and raise issues and talk about them and discuss them both kind of within their own ethnic kind of uh, communities, but then also to talk about them sort of broadly within the chamber with the rest of their colleagues. And I expect that uh, can't, uh, that these legislators of color, both Democratic and Republican, are going to do just that. Yeah, Chuck Bullock, let's let's get into some of the um, some of the things that might be discussed during the session. So, um, and. You know, because we're just coming off the election, because Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger talked about runoffs, I think the elections um, might be an issue. And I heard somebody say the, and you, you can talk about this a little bit, that it is it is um, good to, to have changes with elections or do do whatever you're going to do in odd years, because you know the, um, for instance, the presidential election will be you know, like in 2024 because the elections come in in even years. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, there's a couple of elements which we may see changes in elections. One would be the maintenance of a runoff. You know, do we want to continue to have runoffs for general elections? We are the only state in the nation which has potentially runoffs for a primary and a general election. Now, Mississippi's moving in that direction. We've been the only state which has done that. Do we want to maintain that? Uh, do we want to maintain it at a requirement of 50%? Do we want to do what the legislature experimented with with regard to ballots sent to military personnel and others overseas and move to the instant runoff, also called ranked choice voting? Uh, there's some talk, I think, about maybe extending that experiment and perhaps doing it in the nonpartisan election for municipalities. So we'll rather not make it for partisan offices like legislator, county commissioner, but try it for cities. So that's one element. You know, do we do something or does the legislature do something about the runoffs? The other element uh, is, do we want to take the opportunity which has been offered to us by the Democratic National Party to move our presidential selection process to the very front of the line? Now, you know, this may get caught up in partisan debates, which I think would be unfortunate, because Georgia would have a great deal more influence on both the choice of the Republican as well as the Democratic nominee for president the quicker that we have the vote. So if we were to be, say, uh, tied for number three, as opposed to back in the crowd, which would be in March, you know, we're going to see the full array of candidates who are running, again, both on the Democratic and Republican side, because we know that very early on, the pool of candidates begins to, to, to narrow as candidates drop out. So we would have a wider array of choices. And then also, you know, if you want to look at it particularly from an economic perspective, Tremendous amounts of money would come and be spent in this state by the candidates. We would again get this kind of attention, which we've gotten used to having with our runoffs both in 2020 and 2022. So that would also you know, heighten the significance of this state in the eyes, not just of the United States, but in the eyes of the world. Reporters from all over the world have been covering what we've been doing and choosing our senators. So, as I say, I hope this doesn't get caught up in kind of a partisan issue because Democrats happen to propose it. But instead, that the state looks at it and says, this is advantageous for the state to be able to capitalize on this opportunity to front load, as opposed to being caught back in a crowd of 10 or 15 other states in which, yeah, we're important, but we could easily be eclipsed by you know, California, New York, some bigger state having to have its primary selection process for president at the same time. 
Yeah, I see elections as you know um, a big a big thing for them to talk about this legislative session. Another one, uh, Terry, and and there's already a pre-file on this is the the abortion issue. Of course, uh, the the one pre-file I'm talking about is the Abortion Accountability Act mm-hmm. that um, Rep- Representative. Um, uh, uh, um, um, Darshan Kendrick. Darshan Kendrick. Yes. I wanted to say Kershawn, so she she will get after me about that. Darshan Kendrick. Yes, she, will. <laughs> <laughs> she will get after me. Yeah. It, it, it calls for the government to fill in this gap that some women may have when it comes to abortion. Talk about that and, and, and your thoughts on that. Right. So there are many components of the the Life Act, the Heartbeat Bill, however you want to refer to it, that were not perhaps thought through as thoroughly as they should have been, in large part because many of the Republicans who voted for this bill never actually expected Roe to be overturned. And now that we are living in a post-Roe reality, there are parts of the abortion legislation in Georgia and repercussions of what it means now that women are not being able to receive abortions as part of their health care that... many folks legislatively would like to address. There are, there are actually, I'm hearing, in addition to Representative Kendrick's bill, which I think is in, in it, to be perfectly pragmatic and realistic, is probably not a bill that is going to make its way to the floor. I, I think that, that this legislation is making some very important points, however, and, and, and bringing to the forefront, and bringing to you know, the public knowledge and to you know, dissemination, the, a lot of the problems with the abortion legislation. And I have actually heard on, you know, you know, conversations in the background from even Republicans that, that they recognize there are parts of this legislation that do need to be clarified. You know, there are, there are, we, we, I'm hearing more and more about, for example, women who are presenting at emergency, in emergency departments with ectopic pregnancies that need to be treated. The doctors are very hesitant to, to do anything that might terminate a fetus with a heartbeat, even if it is an ectopic pregnancy, which means it's in the fallopian tube and non-viable. Um, you know, the Republicans have said, oh, well, you know, if you read the bill, you know that ectopic pregnancies are covered. But uh, physicians aren't legislators and they're not attorneys and they're not necessarily going to um, be as aggressive in, in a treatment for, for certain con- conditions if they are concerned that they might be prosecuted. And so I think that you know, a lot of things need to be clarified. There are a lot of aspects of the bill, but you know, I, and, and there are you know, the, the very real economic questions for families. Abortion is overwhelmingly an economic decision when it's not a healthcare decision for women. We know this from years and years and years of data. And so what, what, you know, what is the state going to do in terms of childcare, in terms of support for these families? And I think these are valid discussions that hopefully we'll be having. Yeah, the other thing we might see on the other side is certainly that the um, the Republicans pushing for an all-out abortion ban. There's some talk of that too. So we're we're, yeah. we're going to see, and we've got that that week before uh, January 9th to talk about it. So we're going to get into that a little more. Right now, we're going to have to take our final break on political rewind and come back with more from our guests. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry with Andre Gillespie, Chuck Bullock, Terry Anulowitz, and Stephen Fowler. And since this is the last show of Political Rewind for 2022, let's look back on some of the top things politically. And so I'm going to kind of go round with you guys a little um, to have you briefly talk about, you know, what you see are the, the top issues, uh, you know, kind of that, you know, how we always as, as journalists kind of look back on uh, the year in review. So let's start with our journalist, Stephen Fowler. And so what, what will stick out the most for you in terms of political issues from 2022? I think the thing that is maybe the most bizarre, unexplained thing this year that has stuck with me is the demolition of the Georgia Guidestones and how we still don't know who planted an explosive device at the base of a very, very heavy granite monument in the middle of nowhere and how 
it, I mean, I went and did and talked to the community about what it means in the Granite community and the surrounding town. And I mean, that's something I'm definitely following up on in the new year because, you know, it was a big tourist attraction and now it's a pile of dust. And uh, that's one thing that, uh, apart from bigger political trends, is something that I'm very interested in following. But beyond that, I think the biggest thing that I've been tracking and watching for the last two plus years is what is the direction of the Republican Party? Because the identity of the Republican Party was so consumed by Donald Trump, and then the 2020 election had this split, and we still haven't figured out where we're going and where the party's going. And to me, heading into 2024, and well, in 2023, you know, Georgia has mapped multiple different potential directions with Brian Kemp winning so convincingly and Herschel Walker losing so convincingly and this special purpose grand jury. And so one thing that I think has been uh, Georgia, where Georgia goes, so goes the rest of the country. And so to me, one thing that I think was the most important development this year that will continue to be a development is what is the identity of the Republican Party? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Andra. So, you know, I think when I think back over the year, this is a still pretty momentous year where we still kind of see the ghosts of 2020 lingering over the year. And I think that that's still going to be the case going into 2023. Um, you know, I think the big question that I have coming out of uh, 2022 is how competitive is Georgia? So we saw Democrats underperform in, in statewide elections. Um, we saw Raphael Warnock win in a situation where he was matched against a really bad candidate. So I think that there still is going to have to be some reckoning and there's still going to be a debate about how competitive Georgia truly is. And so it's not, it's, it was never going to be settled by the 2022 election, but I think both sides have fodder to make their case that it either is or isn't competitive kind of going into the 2024 cycle. And so I still expect to see a lot of, of contestation over that. Um, you know, one of the other questions that I think it kind of comes of this is also given the fact that Stacey Abrams, you know, lost the, the, uh, the governorship twice, what does her political future look like? And so I, I, I don't think we've seen the last of her probably not running for, you know, governor again, but she's still going to be around in some way, shape or form. And so I think we'll get a clearer sense of, of what that political future looks like. Uh, you know, in the days and weeks coming forward, you know, and I think that's actually especially relevant given all of the discussion about uh, the finances of her campaign and the final days and weeks um, going into it. So, um, you know, and I think, you know, the other question that I have kind of related to the last segment is, well, what does a post-Roe environment look like in Georgia? Does Georgia kind of double down um, on um, anti-abortion legislation or are we going to kind of stay where we are with the heartbeat bill as it is? So I think that those are really interesting things to think about. Oh, good. Uh, Chuck? Yeah, let me build on what the two previous speakers just said. And I guess in terms of, you know, where is Georgia politically? We hear you know, talk of color, you know, we're not blue, and maybe purple, chartreuse, whatever. I think the clearest thing to say is we're anti-Trump state. If the only Democrats who succeed either are running directly against Trump, as Joe Biden did, or against Trump acolytes. Uh, if you're not running against a Trump candidate, you're not going to win in Georgia as a Democrat. So the two weakest Republicans uh, in this election cycle were the two who were closest to Donald Trump. So, yes, Herschel Walker, very, very close, would not have run, but for Trump's inducements to run. And then uh, Bird Jones, our incoming lieutenant governor, made numerous trips down to Mar-a-Lago, again, had Trump's blessing. And indeed, he is the only person, only significant candidate in Georgia who had Trump's endorsement who managed to succeed. So... Yeah, uh, Trump candidates don't do well in Georgia, but other Democrats struggle. And so the, the margins by which a uh, number of these Republicans who won increased, and the ones where it increased were those who were very much on Trump's hit list. So our, uh, our governor, Brian Kemp, improves his percentage by about 3% over what he got in 2018. Uh, Brad Raffensperger does even better. He goes up by more than four percentage points. So it is Trump, really, which is defining the, the nature of partisan politics within the state today. It won't be that way forever, but that's the status, I think, where we are here in 2022 as we move into 2023 and look at 2024. Terry, look back real quick. So first of all, I do think about the Guidestones probably once a day, and every day I wonder, is this the day when we're going to get a report from the GBI on what on earth happened there? Because I think it's fascinating um, and very alarming that it was able to happen. 
uh, you know, I think that for the General Assembly, I think the the number one story of 2022 was the, the death of Speaker Ralston. I don't think that you know, we knew we were going to have leadership changes in the Senate because the incumbent wasn't running. No one anticipated that we were not going to have the guidance of Speaker Ralston. And I don't think anyone ever anticipated that we would not not only have to process him no longer presiding over the House, but just the trauma and shock of of, of his of his death. I, I think that you know, those questions about where is the GOP going to go, I think candidate quality is going to be an issue that everyone is discussing, especially as we know that, you know, there's no ethnic group, there's no religious group that's a monolith in Georgia. And so both Democrats and Republicans, as we're looking to continue to flip back and forth, especially seats in the General Assembly, we need to make sure that we have candidates who really represent their districts very, very well. And I'm also going to be wondering, you know, who we, we are going to have some changes at the very top. You know, who's going to fill this vacuum, basically, and, you know, to put it bluntly, who's going to fill the vacuum at the top of the Democratic Party in Georgia? Who is going to be the person who is going to be talked about the most in, you know, the next couple of years to run for governor for this open gubernatorial seat that we're going to have? Um, and it may be a name that we haven't even heard much about yet. It could be someone we've heard a lot about, like, you know, like, would it be Jen Jordan? Would it be Andre Dickens? We don't know. And I think that's going to be something to look to look towards. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I agree with all of you. I think uh, you, you make some great points, and I'm, um, it'll be interesting to see what goes forward. Um, we're running out of time, but I have to mention a couple of things with you, Stephen. First of all, Battleground Battle Box, it's going away, and I, I know that must be sad for you, but you've got something good coming up in the new year, and you and your wife are having a child. Yes, we are. Uh, I couldn't time it where I could skip this legislative session because, you know, there's too much for me to cover. But uh, come mid-May, you will be hearing less of me for a little bit. Well, we, we will look forward to that. And uh, I want to thank all of you. This is um, definitely feeling a lot like the holidays. We've got these cold temperatures right now. So bundle up across Georgia. Uh, traditions, young, uh, new and old at the White House. Uh, the first menorah on display at the White House. So very quickly, um, we're all into the holiday season. Uh, that's all the time we have for today in 2022. Thank you to, for tuning in to Political Rewind. Special thanks, amazing team, producers of this show, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, Victoria Evans-Cash, and Jake Cook. And we'll see you in the new year. Thanks, everybody.